Hi, I'm Tristan Miller, and you're listening to Positive and Negative, a podcast about the intersectionality between mental health and the arts. Today on the program, I have several guests joining me. It's our 100th episode, and I thought I'd do something a little special. I re-interviewed a few guests whose lives have changed since last we spoke. I speak with former therapist and YouTube creator Ali Matu about his brother's passing and getting through grief, as well as making changes in the mental health care system. I speak with Melissa Maley, who is an actor, director, and theater practitioner about her experience with cancer. I speak with Tyler Riley, an actor and director, about his experience with therapy, how his views have changed about it, and also how he came to terms with his sexuality. I speak with comedian and podcaster Mike Kaplan about autism spectrum and hyperactivity and meditation and how best to soothe an unquiet mind. And I speak with podcaster and improviser Kate Harlow about dealing with a new diagnosis of bipolar disorder. Our theme song is by Billy Conahan. It's To Be or Nah, off of the album Leaping With Intent to Fly. You can find it on Bandcamp, Spotify, and iTunes. Thanks, Billy, for 100 episodes. This podcast is brought to you in part by Patreon. You can go to patreon.com slash Tristan J. Miller to receive early access to all the episodes of Positive and Negative, and also the uncut version of the interviews you are about to hear. Each interview was about an hour and has been pared down to about 20 minutes. There's a lot of great information in the full interviews, and I highly recommend you check it out as those are available at the $1 level, as well as a lot of other content about and for mental health. It's been wonderful producing these 100 episodes. I'm incredibly grateful for all the opportunities I've had because of this podcast, and I want to thank everybody for listening. It really does mean a lot, and I want to thank every guest that's been on. It's an incredible pleasure and privilege to speak to all of you about something so intimate as mental health. Now, let's get to these interviews. My first guest is comedian and podcaster Mike Kaplan. Mike is a good friend, and I hope you enjoy the interview. Thank you again for uh, coming on again. Thank you again for being on again. Um, already start starting so smoothly. Could not be better. Um, for those of you, for those who are listening, who are not familiar with you, who didn't foolishly didn't listen to your previous episode, can you briefly tell me who you are and what you do? I am happy to do that. Uh, I'll say, <laughs> I think uh, it. it I think it's fine. I understand wanting to listen to all of the podcasts in order as though they are <laughs> a narrative story. Like, But essentially, here we are previously on Mike Kaplan on Tristan's podcast. Uh, <laughs> yes. I am Mike Kaplan, and that is who I was then. Uh, as far as I know, I am now older, hopefully wiser. Certainly, I have lived longer. Uh, I think I know a few more things, but uh, the basics are I am a stand-up comedian. I am a podcaster. I am a uh, a human friend of yours. And uh, how, how's that? That's perfect. And you started comedy in Boston, and you've been do, doing comedy for a very long time. You have how many albums now? 
It's hard to say. Uh, I have a my newest one, uh, as we record this, is about to come out. Uh, May 8th, 2020, we'll see the release of AKA, my what I believe is it's my fifth or sixth, depending how you count, whether you count sure. correctly or otherwise, or <laughs> extra correctly. I, I did put out my first album, Vegan Mind Meld, in 2010. Then I believe Meat Robot came out in 2013. Small, Dork, and Handsome, 2014. Uh, all, uh, sorry, not all kidding aside, uh, all kidding aside, let's seriously tell them the next <laughs> one was called No Kidding. Uh, mm -hmm. And then this one is the fifth one that I'm releasing to everyone. And then there is a secret uh, album that was also recorded in 2017 that I called Live In Between Albums that right now plays exclusively on serious radio comedy channels. Oh. So there are in the world six hours of uh, there's six comedy albums that have been recorded. You, uh, the listener who is not listening to Sirius Radio, can listen to five of them definitely starting May eighth. Uh, you can start. You can start earlier than that, but May eighth you can <laughs> complete the set. And uh, so the number of albums that I have is I forget how many and what they're called. Number. <laughs> sure. But yes, I've been doing comedy since about uh, 2002 ish. So it's about 18 years now. And uh, yeah, it's about six hours in that. So approximately uh, an average of every three years, which is a, a and it's getting getting closer together. Yeah, yeah, I would say so. And uh, th this leads me to my next question. That's a fairly prolific amount of work. How did you do that? What is your process for working and like pushing out? Because you also did a two um music albums too right oh yes uh well so i guess one of the secrets is that anyone can put out a lot of material if they don't care about the quality and <laughs> what i'm i'm not saying that i don't care about the quality of the things that i put out but if you yeah. don't care about like it, it's good to in order to start creating like one must create one mu in order to start it, to go from zero to anything you must yeah. do something and often the first thing that you do is going to be not as good as hopefully you become later which i understood on some instinctive level or uh some explicit level like probably some combination of both starting out like which is why I didn't really, uh, you know, I've had an average of a an hour of recorded comedy every three years, but the first one didn't come out for about eight years. So hmm. the first, the first 50 minute album that I put out uh, was the result of at least seven years. I think we recorded it. I recorded it after seven years and then released it the next year. So seven years of, you know, writing uh, hundreds of jokes, thousands of jokes, trying them all, and then uh, figuring out what the best ones were, what my favorite ones were, and then, uh, you know, becoming a comedian who did uh, a, a headlining sets of comedy uh, and then recording that. And then over the course of years since then, I just continued to create at the rate that I could and wanted to uh, without... So I, I feel like, you know, it's not... Uh, I say secret kind of, you know, with a with a wink. It's actually the secret is mm -hmm. it's not a secret uh, <laughs> yeah. that to just to simply like 
in the beginning, it was just like, turn on the faucet. Like whatever, whatever came, like, do we have any, it's like a brainstorming session. Do we have any ideas? Like bad ideas are good. Good ideas are good. Mediocre ideas are good. We like, and let's look at all the ideas we get in the beginning. Like now I still do come up with as many ideas, but I might record slightly fewer than all of them. I might, I may be like, this is the way that I want to head now, but I do still keep, Mm -hmm. you know, a file of like all jokes, all ideas that that like that I don't get to try all of but in the beginning it was like I I feel like at at every stage there's always some version of you know come up with all the ideas then curate based on uh, what I want to try what I think is good what I'm interested in what represents myself the best what I think will be the funniest what audiences agree are the funniest (laughs) <laughs> and, you know, through like a, a, a collaboration with the audience where much like the collaboration of uh, musician and instrument, you know, you're like, what do you think about this chord instrument? Oh, not, not that one. Great. We won't put our fingers <laughs> in that position on the guitar ever again, unless unless we choose to for the reason that we want. We, oh, we like that dissonance now. But in the beginning, uh, you know, the, the goal was to have the consonants of uh, and vowels of audience and and performer be like ah i say this you say laugh this laugh this laugh uh and but not saying laugh wow what a, what an amazing fun oh, fun bit so yeah now audience when i say a funny joke you say laugh funny joke laugh funny yeah. joke laugh funny, uh is this a funny joke I, I hope you laugh i hope that you know i actually don't know what i would hope for but uh yeah the i can't i think we all have our own rates of of output of speaking like and here's something mm-hmm. i speak quicker than some people i put out maybe more albums than some people but also there are some people who put out one album in 20 years and it's a an amazing beloved beautiful work of art that you know you nobody nobody looks at somebody who does that and then compares be like well but why didn't they do three you know it's mm. like i'm i'm glad that part of my process has been like being happy with what the best that i could do at 7 years was and then the best late you know 3 years later and the best another year and 3 years and whatever the rates are like i'm glad that i, I I could have waited. I could have waited 18 years to release my first album and had had the same course of of like production, the same course of creative output. Like, but uh, there. I mean, there's. I guess like, there's no way to go back and do that now. So I'm gonna keep going along <laughs> the timeline that I'm. I am grateful for the way things have gone. But an analogy I like is that in my linguistic studies, I gleaned uh, from somebody telling me, probably explicitly. <laughs> uh, American English uh, uses a certain number of words per minute on average compared to other languages. Mm. And Chinese, uh, I, I'm not sure if it's Cantonese, Mandarin, or both, but uh, at least one uh, Chinese dialect or language uses fewer words per minute than the average American English speaker does, the average Chinese speaker. Uh, but the amount of information that is conveyed in a minute of average Chinese speech and an average uh, American minute is the same. The same, like, like, like hmm. we might use more words that are less important, like the, you know, there, but there might not be as many equivalents of the. So all the information gets across. And this is all to say that I might put out, you know, 
six albums in 18 years and somebody else might put out three but we're we're probably conveying the same comedy like we're we're, we're both conveying <laughs> yeah. ourselves somebody who speaks more doesn't mean that mm-hmm. each unit of speech is inherently more valuable i do i'm not i don't want to throw myself under the bus i am i think that all of i'm i'm endeavoring to say the highest quant the highest quantity of quality jokes words expressions but over the course of time it may be like if i could go back and edit a lot of the words out of this podcast there's probably some that are more important than others you do speak very quickly and that like i would imagine your mind is going very quickly because of that you know would you consider yourself someone who's like hyperactive at all uh i the here's the thing is I don't specifically consider myself that, though when someone asks me that, I'm like, oh, ought I consider myself? I could consider myself, like, and (laughs) because I only have my own experience. I don't have anybody else's experience to compare to. I'm like, oh, I do understand that this is how I am compared to others. And sometimes I would say, like, the reason I, when you first asked this question, there's a lot of answers. Uh, But I first started thinking like, Sometimes I am speaking quickly, maybe in some ways more quickly than I am thinking. Like there are sometimes, like if you've asked me a question and I'm like, ah, I wanna answer that question. But before I answer that question, I'll start like the the machine of speaking going. Like I've found myself Hmm. on stage sometimes or in life saying, certainly before I know exactly what I'm going to say. And I'm like, "How (laughs) how can I know that it's certain if I don't know what it is? And I'm just like, you know, on, on the the little the hamster wheel of speech mm-hmm. and thought i do think i do think that i think quickly and i do think that i speak quickly and i think that sometimes those things are connected and so i certainly the question of whether i identify as or am hyperactive by some measurable metric i would say i'm certainly active and at times <laughs> more hyper than others and certainly mm-hmm. my uh, my metrics might be comparatively more hyper, more hyperactive than somebody else who doesn't identify as such or doesn't speak as quickly as I do. However, I I think that I I have sort of like a comfortable average zone, and my my comfortable average zone might be just slightly quicker than someone else, which again doesn't mean that my brain is. It, moving more quickly or certainly it's not i'm not saying that my brain is better than anyone's brain you have mentioned in your comedy and this is also something we've talked about as just like people who know each other as friends um about this idea of things being on a spectrum yes and you've mentioned one of my i don't know if you do this joke regularly anymore but something you said that made me laugh was if it's a if like autism is a spectrum disorder i'm not saying i'm autistic but i'm closer to than probably most other people in this room where does that come from in your mind uh that's a a fine question and i throughout the years i have written a few jokes about autism and the autism spectrum and people who uh have autism and identify as autistic and a lot of the people who have uh, who have come up to me after shows and like written to me about those jokes, like f- who are members of that community, uh, either autistic mm-hmm. themselves or people who uh, have autistic people in their family or work with autistic people, uh, mo- 
the the response have been overwhelmingly positive, which I'm glad about. And if it wasn't, then I would certainly have reconsidered telling the jokes because the jokes were meant to be uh, loving and thoughtful and uh, and sort of expressive of a point of view. You know, like I think that a lot of people in the community like felt. Uh, I'm glad, uh, sort of seen and sort of understood mm -hmm. by the jokes that the jokes captured something about their experience. And so that's one of the reasons that I've thought about like the idea uh, that I, I've never been, I've never been tested. I've never been diagnosed. Uh, though I did, I did have a therapist once who I, I asked about this um, because I had a girlfriend at the time, this was about maybe 10 years ago. And there was one one day where we were we were meant to like go meet some friends of mine at a particular time, and the time we, the time to leave my home like was I was like we have exactly the right amount of time to get there on time if we leave now. And my girlfriend was like, "Do you mind if we like go this way to stop at this uh, drugstore or something? I want to pick something up." And it was like the other way from where we were going, and it would have added some number of minutes, you know, to the trip. And at the time, that upset me that. Uh, the plan wasn't going to be adhered to, that the plan uh, of my being punctual to get there, it, which was to a friend's home for brunch that we ended up being the first ones at anyhow, uh, <laughs> which later, like, I was able to, you know, contextualize and be like, oh, like, why? Like, cer there's certainly being punctual is, can be, it's, it's a kind thing to do, I think. If you agree that you're going to be somewhere at a time, why not try to be there? I also think it's good to let oneself off the hook if one is a few minutes late once to a thing. And certainly uh, my friends who were expecting us at a range of a time that maybe started at the time that I was aiming to get there, like certainly they weren't to be like, hey, we said that brunch started at noon and you arrived at noon plus 10 or 15 or whatever it might have been like, you know, amongst loving friendships. I, I do think that they're, you know, again, as a spectrum, uh, if somebody, if a friend shows up late by a certain measure uh, every time, if you're always on time and your friend's always late or vice versa, like that seems like something that you can like uh, maybe discuss or, you know, uh, look within yourself if you're like, oh, why, why do I do that? Or why does this happen? Can I do something? Am I not respecting my friend's time, am I? Uh, but at this particular juncture, this was like a one-time specific thing, but because of how upset I got, it sort of raised the question, like my girlfriend at the time, like lovingly offered, she's like, have you ever considered? She's like, this is a specific reaction that doesn't make sense to me. Uh, but I, you know, she had been like versed in, uh, like maybe she had read some things about how this could be like uh, for people on the autism spectrum, like, a, I don't know if it would be a symptom or just like a, a signifier or, you know, something that might exist within that realm. And I was like, oh, so I, I shared this with a therapist and I was like, is this something that would be reasonable to look into? And she, uh, my therapist said, no, this just seems, she, I, I feel like at the time she was like, you're just kind of like a typical guy, you know, like, uh, <laughs> yeah. like having this, uh, this, you know, want, this want of control, this need for like, you know, I, I dictate, you know, my, mm -hmm. my surroundings or whatever it was. Maybe I'm like making this up now, but the point is that whatever, whatever aspects of who I am or who I have been, uh, like led to these jokes, led to this uh, manner of being, uh, it it was resonant, and so that is why 
uh, I have either joked and or talked about like my potentially like the idea that if if it's a spectrum, it might be zero to a hundred or zero mm-hmm. to sixty or whatever it is. And so yes, I do think that I mean it might be just that I'm somewhere on the Judaism spectrum or the Jewishness spectrum, <laughs> and or you know the this like there's so many different possible spectrums and binaries and or non-binaries mm-hmm. and nebulae going around. But yes, the idea that this is something, this is the way that I am, and it has been resonant to people in various uh, autism and autism-related communities. So that was certainly something that, the same way that if somebody's like, oh, hyperactivity, is that something that you have you identify mm-hmm. with if you think about? Like, oh, I mean, I hadn't been naming it. I hadn't been, mm-hmm. uh, you know, conjuring it uh, as that uh, as that thing, as that representation. But uh, similarly, uh, I'm like, oh, yeah, you because you bring it up, it might be valuable to think about. And I'm like, oh, sure. well, eh, am I? And is it is it either am I or am I not? And the answer is certainly, is it to be or not to be? I'm like, it's somewhere in between being and not being, mm-hmm. I think. It's the twos. Yes. Yeah. Um, what were you what were you doing in therapy? What what led you to go there? A great question. Um I've gone to a few different therapists over the years. My my first time I went in college and the main impetus was that I wanted to stop biting my nails. In that therapy, I my my therapist in college also uh, addressed with me that I guess I had gone one time with uh, my parents to couples counseling right before they got divorced. They went to couples therapy together uh, on their own, and then they brought me to at least one session at which I fell asleep, which lit my college therapist pointed at and said, uh, I think that therapist wasn't the greatest if they didn't address that to say, like, look, your your child is here and isn't awake, can't be awake, like, is being avoidant of a kind, like, mm-hmm. uh, and that seems like a thing that could have been addressed, but wasn't, and uh, until this point, I'm like, oh, I guess I do sometimes fall asleep when I'm tired or want to be, or who knows if it's a defense mechanism of a kind but uh my my goal when i went to therapy in college was i wanted to tell the therapist everything about my life and then have them say oh and how are you now and i'm like and this is how i feel now and then have them be like that seems about right like you have all the input (laughs) that you've shared with me seems like this output is correct and now you know i studied psychology in college and Mm -hmm. i understand that that's not exactly how it usually goes um But uh, when I went 10 years ago, thereabouts, I was dating a woman and I had part of the reason was like, I mean, I think that therapy is valuable for so many reasons. And so the two main reasons that I went then, number one, I had been on television a few times and so had better insurance at that time than I've ever had as an adult since getting off of my parents' insurance. And so the fact that I could go for a $20 copay to, you know, a a legit, a a practicing uh, psychologist or whatever the degree she had was, uh, was valuable. In addition to that, I, I was in a relationship that offered some challenges, as sometimes relationships do. I had some internal questions. I was... Both, uh, I mean, I, I wanted to talk about that and sort of other sort of you know disagreements and challenges that came up in my relation. I think it was mainly my relationship. You're a, a very self-aware person as well as a very self-accepting and also aware and accepting of others. 
how have you curated that over the years, specifically internally with yourself? Sure, that's a, a great question. And um, ah, let me think for a moment. Uh, whenever great question to me means I don't know the answer. Let me uh, <laughs> uh, let me think about it. Sincerely, uh, here are some things that I do that help. Uh, I read things by people who know more than I do about these things. Uh, including like Buddhist writers like Pema Chodron or Thich Nhat Hanh. Uh, I've re I read things by Ram Das, a poet philosopher guy named Mark Nepo. Uh, and I think that my, my partner Rini has brought uh, a lot of, uh, like I think she's the one who introduced me to Pema Chodron, for example, like, and she has in her life experience, like been, let's say for lack of a, uh, to be slightly simplistic about it, like she's been a seeker, and uh, and some of the things that she has sought and found have like fallen in, let's say, the the self help range. Like there's a a woman, a, a teacher, a speaker, uh, a wise person named Byron Katie who has these great uh, worksheets called these Judge Your Neighbor worksheets uh, and this process called the work. And there's uh, she introduced my Rini introduced me to Brene Brown, who now I've I've seen her Netflix special, which came out recently, and uh, some other of her TED talks. And she does like sort of research and storytelling based around uh, a lot often the concept of shame. Um, I think that in so much. Uh, Buddhist writing and and learning and teaching, there is uh, you know guides towards mindfulness, guides towards gratitude in you know doing what you can to both help yourself and help others, which are sort of like often flip sides of the same coin. Like if you you know um, think about compassion towards yourself. Uh, you can th sometimes it's helpful to think about compassion towards others. Like my friend Shane Moss is a wonderful comedian who. I don't know if this is, I forget if this is a joke of his or just a thing that he's said, but it's a, a beautiful thing that he says when, when you're kids, when you're a kid, you have to be told usually, we teach kids like treat others the way that you would want to be treated. Treat others like, you know, you don't want people to pick on you. You don't want people to take your toys. So like treat others the, you know, as kindly as you want to be treated. And then when you get to be adults, he says we have to switch and be like, hey, treat yourself the way that you would treat your friend. Mm -hmm. Be like, you know, if, if you think, if you make a mistake, like you'd be like, oh, stupid, why did I do that? And you beat yourself up. We beat ourselves up internally, emotionally, much more than if a friend, like like me being late, I'd be like, oh man, why did I do that? Whereas if a friend's late, I'd, I'm like, hey, that's, it's no big deal. I'm happy to wait a few minutes. You're my friend. Of course, I don't want to shame you for a thing that happens to all of us, these external circumstances that get in our way. And so I think a combination of like, uh, you know, finding valuable teachers in the world, finding uh, a partner and partners or like beloved friends who are also on similar journeys of, of trying to be this way. Uh, I think I, I don't remember like I can't chronologize it. I, can, I don't remember where it started, but I know I think I I don't know if it was that I heard Thich Nhat Hanh on like a, a TED Talk hour show, like radio show on NPR. But there was some a segment about gratitude and gratitude, which I think like there's scientific evidence that suggests like that the happiest people are grateful, not because they are happy to have things that they're grateful for, but that gratitude itself is an engine for happiness. And similarly, I started meditating when I was about uh, maybe six years ago, but 2014, 
Uh, so somewhere in like my mid thirties, I, I had heard of meditation. I knew people who did it, who enjoyed it, who kind of swore by it. And at the time, up until that point, I was like, I don't know why I would do like, it seems like doing nothing. It seems like just sitting. Mm -hmm. Like I'm a person who does things. I move, I go, I like, there's so many things to do. You're active. Yeah, exactly. I can't, how can I do all of the things? Perhaps before I was hyperactive and now I'm like, let's take that hyper away and just meditate for a moment. And then we'll do meditate and active. Those are the two things that we do meta active yeah instead of just active 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 back to back active above the active yeah uh again and again which i liked uh in your introduction to me uh or to the show this time you were like thank you again for being here again i do think it's it was sort of prescient you know foreshadowing the again and again active and active back to back mm -hmm. to back active and i so i i would say that the, the thing that was valuable about meditation, the reason that I started doing it was kind of because it was at a time when I was becoming, like for lack of a better term, wooier, which is like, I read this Buddhist quote, which is also probably in many song lyrics, uh, but it's keep your head in the clouds and your feet on the ground. And the reason that I started trying meditation before I knew that I would get into it and love it, I was like, let me try it sort of uh, as, a, as a scientific minded person. Uh, I would say at that time I was perhaps more like atheist identified and I was like, well, so this world is, this world exists. So let me see. Science suggests that meditation is valuable. Meditation can be calming. Meditation can help. There are empirical data that support this. And then also there are people, you know, there are people doing uh, yoga and there are people loving, you know, it, it, whatever the, the, the wooier aspects of meditation can be the, let's say for lack of a better term, more spiritual aspects. So I liked that it was like everybody agreed. It was like, you know, like humans and angels, like science and magic. There's a meditation fell in the overlap of the, like there was so, okay, I don't, I don't believe in any of that wooey stuff, but I do want to, I think that it works. You know, uh, I, I could see that it works. People are claiming that it works. Or if you're like, I don't care if it works. I'm just like, I want to tap into whatever this thing is. So it was kind of like both of those things, which Ultimately, I learned later, like, uh, I, I, the, the meditation that I do isn't, like, explicitly Buddhist, or maybe even it's not Buddhist at all. But in Buddhism, I talked to a friend who was raised Buddhist, and I got this message from her, as well as from a lot of Buddhist teachings and readings that I've done uh, separately, that Buddhism is not about telling you what to do. It's about being like, would you like to try this and see for yourself if it works? And that's what meditation was about for me. It's like, I'll try it. And if it is valuable, if it if I see results or if I enjoy the way that it makes me feel or if it if I get something from it or if I it's it's hard to even describe exactly. But it's like try it and don't do it because somebody said to do it because you have tried it and found it valuable. And so that is that is what happened for me with uh, with meditation, with the practice of, you know, not explicitly necessarily gratitude journaling, but some equivalent of that, like explicitly thinking about gratitude and practicing it. And and then in certainly it's been kicked into high gear in my relationship with Rini. Like she taught me uh, this phrase that like we see the world not as it is, but as we are. Uh, and one one maybe final point of it is uh, a, a Buddhist master, I like a Zen master named uh, Shunryu Suzuki, I believe, is the person who said to his students, you are all perfect exactly as you are and also could all stand some improvement. 
And I want to thank you for doing this again and again and again. <laughs> and maybe we'll do it again and again and again. It's been and continues to be. And if it is once more again, a pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much. Thank you, Tristan. Next on the program, I speak with Tyler Riley. Tyler and I host a podcast together called Amateur Detective Club, along with Melissa Maley, the following guest. I speak with Tyler about therapy, anxiety, and sexuality. We had previously spoken, and you started like going to a therapist and questioning what was going on with your mental health in college, right? Yeah, I had went to um, our wellness center, is what they refer to it as, at Stockton University. And yeah, it really turned me off therapy. Uh, as I noted the last time we were here, and I mm-hmm. kind of railed against it a bit for myself. Like, yeah. I, I believe I said at the time, like, it works for you, it works for you, and that's wonderful. But it's just not for me. Yeah. And, and then less than a year later, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I went to a therapist and I really enjoyed it. I found my right fit. Mm-hmm. And what kind of therapy was that? Uh, I guess like general psychotherapy. Okay. Is that what it's talk therapy? To? It's just you two talking in a room. Yeah. Okay. What about that, like, made you feel better than what you had previously experienced? I, I just felt more at ease. It was more about the energy in the room. And she, like me, had kind of a low, low calm energy mm-hmm. to her. And I really appreciated that. And I also think it was just easier speaking to a woman, hmm. um, I found. Uh, maybe that had something to do with it. I am just speculating. We didn't have time <laughs> to, like, really delve into <laughs> my psyche too much before um i unfortunately had to stop seeing her because my insurance changed i see and i could no longer afford her all right and have you been doing anything since your your insurance changed uh i took what uh i learned from her in the brief time that i was able to see her and i kind of just tried to you know, kind of shift my perspective on some of the things that were giving me stress, you know, mm-hmm. kind of letting go uh, some of the things that were just far beyond my control Okay. in ways that I hadn't before. Do you often feel like you're trying to control things that you can't? Very much so. <laughs> I like to be, <laughs> and you know this, I like to be in control. Um yeah. Yeah, I like hosting a party so I can shut it down. Where do you think that comes from? I think it just, uh, I think it comes from a lack of, a lack of control uh, at, you know, an early age. Things that were beyond me. I guess being able to control my own narrative versus, Mm -hmm. you know, what other people can say about me. It's like, no, I'm going to tell you about myself. I'm going to be, you know, I get to kind of take the reins over my own life in a way going back to the like the third like moving forward with the things that you have learned from therapy how has that impacted your your life now it's been easier to let things go Mm -hmm. 
um, I was in a brief relationship um, this past year. And I think me prior to therapy would have like wallowed and mm. oh my gosh it was all my fault you know you know i should have done this i should have done that it's you know it's my fault i'm bad i'm not worthy and all that which is kind of my behavior before when like when things didn't work out it was, like everything was it was it was my fault and with this like within a day i was just completely just free of you know any real hard feelings and i didn't blame myself mm-hmm. like i took accountability for some of my actions that led to the demise of my relationship because it's a two-way yeah. street i mean it takes you know it takes two but i took the accountability and you know i knew what i did mm-hmm. and i knew that i did all that i could do so i was able to just let that go has that impacted your creative process no it has not (laughs) (laughs) i'm still very hard on myself very Mm -hmm. critical of myself um and i think that's part of the reason why i don't like listening to myself do you think you're you're gonna push towards that though that letting go Uh, i'm trying to i actually uh found a recording of a play i did in college Mm. uh, a version of ajax uh, which is still one of my favorite roles ever. Actually, it's my favorite role of all time. And I was actually able to watch, like, 30 seconds of it. Which sounds short, but, like, when you actually think about 30 seconds, like, 30 seconds of it, it feels a lot longer. Yeah. So it's proud that I actually made it to 30 seconds. And I was able to just listen to myself. Like, I was putting, like, a stage voice on. Sure. But... I was still able to like watch myself and like I was able to critique myself appropriately. Like I wasn't overly hard on myself. I was just going, oh, I shouldn't have held my hand like that, or I should have gestured, and you know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. this way versus that. So like I think I am. I think I will look over time slowly do it, but I don't know if that's necessarily because of uh, the therapy sessions that I have. I would really love to be able to go back to therapy though. And you, I mean, I don't know if it's recent. I, I mean, it feels recent. It's not, it's since I've known you, but it feels recent of like you being open about your sexuality. What was it like making that information public and how was the reaction and how did you feel about it? Oh man. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. Getting in there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it was, I don't remember consciously making the decision Mm. Uh, because like I never like had like a Twitter update or Facebook status (laughs) that was like I'm this sure deal with like or anything like that it was just kind of like I started like sharing more and more things that were pertinent to I guess the bisexual community Mm -hmm. like articles I started sharing a lot of things by uh org and the Ministry of Bisexual Propaganda, the best mm-hmm. group on Facebook. And, you know, it just... Either you, like, either you picked it up or you didn't, was kind of just <laughs> how I looked at it, and how I still kind of look at it. Like, if, yeah. you, if you still don't 
no, then like that's kind of on you. Like yeah. I don't need to say it, but like it's not something that I'm hiding anymore because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. I was hiding it uh, a lot on social media um, from extended family because I just didn't know how that reaction was going to be. Mm-hmm. Um, a very distinct memory I have from childhood is every year we would go down to West Virginia uh, to see my dad's side of the family. And I remember one year, I think I was like 10 or 11, I went to my grandma's church. And I, I remember the, uh, the reverend talking about how this gay man had come and sought counsel mm-hmm. from him. And the Reverend going on about how disgusted he was by this person and just spent like a good 15, 20 minutes just making fun of this man that was asking for counsel, asking for help, asking for spiritual guidance. And it just turned into like the stand-up comedy room. And I remember just the reaction of the congregation. Everyone was hooting and hollering and laughing. I just felt so disgusted. Yeah by the reaction in the room. And I was like, this is, you know, my grandma is like the matriarch of the family. Like, Mm -hmm. and she's earned it. Uh, (laughs) But I just remember just like that feeling was like, well, this is the church that she goes to. This is where she hides. Mm -hmm. They can never know. Mm. And just, I remember just feeling like very, like scared. Mm-hmm. Um, about what my life would be like if I was gay. And I saw my grandma again last year, I think for Thanksgiving. But I just, I remember seeing her and we were talking and she alluded to like, you know, I've been seeing the stuff that you've been posting on Facebook and like didn't say exactly what that was or what that meant but like I felt Mm -hmm. (laughs) that she was alluding to you know the fact that she now knows that I'm bisexual and I still never got clarity I never wanted to ask I just didn't know what that conversation was going to be like so I just like I'm like oh okay and just like (laughs) kind of let it go but I did feel like and it I really hope it was that because I did feel like this um, sense of relief like a day or two later because I mean she still told me she loved me we still played cards like we still Mm -hmm. talk you know as much as we ever did so it like the dynamic didn't shift I want to touch on two things do you think the um, self-acceptance of that part of you has fueled self-acceptance in other places I think it will. My self-acceptance is ever-evolving. Mm-hmm. Because I'm still, you know, I'm still trying to love myself, if that makes sense. Um, the other thing I wanted to ask you about is you mentioned some hesitancy towards that some of the black members of the church may have had. Um, mm-hmm. Why would that be? I don't know exactly what it is rooted in. Uh, 
besides the Bible. Um, <laughs> yeah. Or the Bible as it has been interpreted, uh, I suppose, is a better way of framing it. Because each denomination and each church has like their own kind of leaning uh, to the teachings of the Bible, but you know it it all comes back to slavery, uh, <laughs> where you know religion and the church was the one place that slaves congregate. So like mm. really taking hold of the word of God as it was written by man. Mm-hmm. And really just wanting to live a good life and live a life of faith and a life of service and worship to get to that better afterlife. Yeah. Um, I have uh, family members who uh, are not of the Christian or are Jehovah's Witness Christians. Technicality. Right? Yeah. They're like a part of the umbrella. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, I have like a family member more than a couple family members that are of that faith and I remember just like having conversations with other family members who were just like legitimately just concerned like legitimately concerned about the fact that not everyone you know was practicing Mm -hmm. Christianity as they were because because not because, um, sorry, like, trying to think of the right framing. Like out of concern for their spiritual well-being. Right. Yeah. And like almost heartbreakingly concerned about not being able to see them mm-hmm. in the afterlife because of, you know, because of their faith. And it was just so fascinating because I never really think about like that kind of stuff and it was just it really put into perspective for me how important christianity is to so many people yeah um i mean it would hurt if you know those family members uh were like you're bisexual we don't we can't be associated with you mm-hmm. you know if we are to get into heaven or whatever the case may be but i now would have an understanding you know mm-hmm. i wouldn't bemoan them mm. i wouldn't hate them you know it would just it would hurt mm-hmm. but i would understand that that is their absolute belief it is the truth to them and that's how a lot of people tend to feel is that you know you have to go by you know these rules and these teachings what i do have a problem with though is the hypocrisy of those same people um that you know the the people that just kind of pick and choose which passages of the bible are more important than others yeah which sin carries the most weight yeah and i still don't know how that has been determined (laughs) ever 
<laughs> there are passages in the Bible that are like all sins are equal. So it's like if you lie, it's just as bad as this other thing. So like, yeah, come it's on, like man. you're asking for forgiveness every week. If, if I'm, you know, asking God to forgive my sins, that's all encompassing, you know. How would you say that your various mental states have impacted your ability to pursue an artistic career? I guess kind of just seeking approval. Mm. And, you know, the approval is pretty immediate when, you know, things go well (laughs) in the arts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, like, yeah, so, I mean, that's really what it does for me. And, like, when it goes poorly, like, I handle it very poorly i get very i i shut down Mm. um i just quite haven't figured out what that coping mechanism needs to be for myself uh when moments like that happen yeah like i've never been booed but like there has been there has been silence (laughs) (laughs) you know which i almost feel was like worse it's like dang i didn't make you feel a thing did i all right yeah but has it ever prevented you from pursuing your career? Yes. When I first moved up near the city, it took me about a year before I auditioned hmm. because I was so terrified. Hmm. Uh, I hadn't at that point done a show uh, for quite some time, maybe a year, maybe two years. Um, and my first audition did not go well at all. Do you think, do you feel as it, at any point your mental health is like, or your, you know, your issues, mental health issues, have you like helped you produce good art? Or do you think they've only been a hindrance? I really do feel that, you know, my mental health has uh, helped my art immensely because I feel so strongly about things and I have trouble verbalizing sometimes like what I'm feeling and what's causing me to feel that way. So when I'm Mm. doing a role or in a scene where I get to express the same emotion of what I'm feeling on stage, it has really heightened that moment. Like I do get to just get it out. But also even the times where where you're just taking that negative energy and just pushing forth with something positive. I think um, it's kind of like a symbiotic relationship at this point, my mental health and my art. Mm -hmm. It helps and it hurts both equally, I think. Because it does... um, it does help relieve me mm-hmm. of the negativity that I'm feeling at a moment, but I also therefore don't address what the issue was. Ah, oh, I see. You're, you're treating as symptoms, but not the disease. Yeah. Interesting. It's got to be a combination of not walking on the foot and also taking Advil. <laughs> Emotionally. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, this was great. It was good catching up on with you. Um, And I want to thank you very much for doing this. Thank you for having me back.
Coming up next, I speak with Melissa Maley, theater practitioner, about her experience with cancer and how that changed how she views her mental health. For the people who are listening to this that haven't listened to your original episode yet, um, <laughs> what is it that you do? Who are you? I am Melissa Maley. I am a theater practitioner. So you're I like that practitioner as if you're like a like a licensed physician of theater. I like it because I wear many hats, mm-hmm. so it doesn't uh, limit me. And last time we spoke, we spoke a lot about uh, your dealing with your mother's passing, um, how that had an impact on you emotionally as a young person, mm-hmm. and and moving forward from that. Now, since then, you went through another large life change. Um, you, you were diagnosed with breast cancer, and that you and I have had conversations that have not been recorded about how that has kind of changed your worldview. And I would love to hear more about that. Yeah, it really has. Uh, I mean, it's so funny because I was thinking about when I recorded this last and how I'm not a completely different person by any stretch (laughs) of the imagination, but it feels like a lifetime ago. I dealt with breast cancer. I was diagnosed in March of 2018. And I had a bilateral, well, my mother died of breast cancer. So, Mm -hmm. um, of course, this was alarming to my doctors that I was also diagnosed at a fairly young age. And my surgeon, she's fairly conservative normally. She doesn't normally encourage women who have stage one breast cancer to have bilateral mastectomies, uh, Mm -hmm. which is what I opted for because I kind of just chose the route of, I don't want to mess around with this. I don't want it to come back. I want to give myself the best chance. Um, So that's what I did. I also then had four months of chemotherapy after that. Um, And then I had reconstructive surgery a number of months after that actually ran into some complications. Nothing too major, just my my body was all sorts of, you know, stressed out from a lot of things. So we had to wait on that a little bit, but I had my mastectomy in April of 2018. And I had chemo from May till August. Mm. And I had my reconstruction finally in December. And so far, everything has been really good. Um, But as far as my worldview, it's kind of put a lot of things in perspective. Uh, I think my mother's cancer did in a different way. Uh, It made me realize that, like, life is valuable and terrible things could happen at any time is what my mother's uh, cancer did. But uh, what my cancer did was help me kind of realize what is important and what's um you know some things are not worth getting stressed about um Mm -hmm. i mean i have an anxiety disorder (laughs) my brain chooses what i get stressed about but it just kind of refocused a lot of a lot of that um things that used to bother me don't bother me as much um and it gave me a renewed sense of purpose 
Um, it also gave me some psychological things to deal with uh, in, in the year following, okay. which was, of course, last year, 2019. Um, it was go, go, go when dealing with the actual cancer itself. There was a lot of stuff to be done. There were a lot yeah. of people here helping me. Uh, my boyfriend was deployed in Kuwait with the army when I was uh, going through my cancer treatment, <laughs> which is just, you know, just kind of the timing happened that way. Yeah. But I had a lot of friends and family be very, very helpful and very, very caring. Um, I had just moved into a new apartment that my boyfriend and I were sharing, just the two of us, and of course the dog. Um, and so I had some people who live in my area in Astoria um, come stay with me, especially just after surgery. And that was really wonderful because I had a lot of people around and, you know, it didn't, in some ways, didn't feel as psychologically stressful as I think it could have. Um, but then last year was, that hit, that part hit me a lot more. I thought I'd be super ready to just hit the ground running with everything I wanted to accomplish and, you know, get back to auditioning and stuff. But yeah. uh, there was a lot of ripples that I had to deal with. Uh, I wasn't ready <laughs> to, yeah. to go out and get every, go out and get everything. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, that makes sense. I think that's a reasonable response. Um when you were first diagnosed and mm -hmm. when you were dealing with all like going through the treatment for cancer did that bring up any old anxieties surrounding your mother's death kind of indirectly okay so i have dealt with a lot of stuff about my mother uh, i think that my biggest trigger up until i had cancer was the idea that I would someday get it. Huh. And I kind of, in the back of my brain, thought it was inevitable that someday it would mm. happen to me. Mm -hmm. So once I got it, it was not a relief, but it was just like, yeah. okay, here we are. We're dealing with this now. Yeah. But, yeah. but there were certain things. Um, like my mother could not get, have reconstruction. She, mm. of course, dealt with uh, this a lot, you know, many years before I did, so the medicine was different, and they did different things for her treatment than they ended up doing for mine in certain cases. My mom was stage three when she was diagnosed. I was stage one, and many mm -hmm. years later, the technology is better, too. So mm -hmm. that was uh, that was definitely helpful in terms of easing some of my anxiety, but I was concerned about my reconstruction not working, because... Um, mm. As much as we'd all like to not be vain, um, yeah. especially in theater, there is a certain amount of vanity and feeling like the worthlessness that would come with my body being, you know, in my mind, disfigured. Um, oh. Yeah, I mean, in a certain way. Um, and my, because, yeah, my mother's, uh, my mom had a unilateral mastectomy, so she had to wear a prosthesis for the rest of her life. Um, mm. she, she dealt with it three times. So there were mm. three different diagnoses. Um, 
but it was the initial initial time that she had her mastectomy. And so I, there was anxiety over that. And when my con- reconstruction started having so- certain issues, like um, it's a lot of, you know, procedure and surgery and medicine stuff to explain. I'll try not mm-hmm. to get into that, but it seemed like, you know, is this actually going to work? Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was very stressful. And then I remember my mom having a port put in so that when, you know, she had treatments instead of having to find a vein and stick her every time, mm-hmm. they could just go into the port and do it that way. And I flat out refused yeah. to have that. What about running? soothes your anxiety like is it just physically getting that energy out or like Mm -hmm. why that and not other things i guess is the question oh well because they have races in disney world (laughs) and when i was lying in bed after my chemo treatment i was watching disney vlogs and started seeing people doing run disney events and i had the thought well i've always hated running Like, I would refuse to run when people wanted me to in the past. I was lying in bed watching these Run Disney things, and I thought, you know what? This can't be as bad as chemotherapy. (laughs) So I uh, decided that maybe I'd try to run a race in Disney World. And I told Rich, my boyfriend, about this. And he said, if you train for a half marathon, we can run one next year. This is when he got back in February of mm-hmm. 2019. Uh, he said that to me. And I said, okay. Uh, <laughs> and so I started training for 5K at first, and then a 10K, and then uh, a half marathon. Um, I ran one in October. Uh, it was my first half marathon. And then I ran another one. And then I ran one in Disney World in January. And from an emotional standpoint, what do you get out of it? endorphins are really great (laughs) (laughs) yeah and i had not really realized uh how much because you know i'd gone to the gym and like done the elliptical machine and stuff and Mm -hmm. i had had really good workouts from kickboxing and whatnot um but like the cardio you get from running is you can't i mean there are other things that do it but it is one of the best ways to get a great cardio workout and mm-hmm. it really, like, even if the entire run feels terrible, you know, as long as you're not actually injuring yourself, you feel fantastic afterwards. Just, it, it lifts your mood. There's all sorts of chemicals that happen. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really good. And also when you're running, especially outside, you can really kind of just feel free and zone out and enjoy especially if there's a really nice day outside, a good breeze. What other methods have you used besides running to cope with the anxiety you've felt both post, you know, cancer, but also like what had you been doing before you had cancer or did everything change? So before I had cancer, I mean, I've always, you know, had uh, cyclical circular thinking. Mm -hmm. Um, that's always been a problem because it just kind of, uh, you know, it just keeps going around and around and around. It's really hard to get out of the spiral. 
Um, and I would talk it out with people a lot. Um, mm-hmm. Sometimes I still do, but I need a lot less of that. Um, when I'm trying to work through a problem. I. Why do you think that is? It's such a weird thing to try to speculate about. But I think I've just become better at processing the problems. Sure. Uh, like, I just... The things that used to really give me a lot of anxiety, I uh, I understand what the, prob- what the answer to the problem is. And even mm-hmm. if it's still stressing me out, I don't mm-hmm. feel the need to talk about it. I realize that talking about it when I don't need to anymore actually exacerbates it because mm. I... I would just keep keep it churning in my head if I talked about it too much. And hmm. now I've been able to kind of be like, all right, this is the answer to my issue. But I've also, and this is bad, don't do this, um, but like I've developed kind of an avoidance. I've always kind of had issues with being stressed out about communicating. Like, mm-hmm. I... Not in-person communication, but, like, the telephone, email, Facebook Messenger is my worst. Mm -hmm. But I will see something and go, I have to deal with that. And this isn't as much avoidance as it is me just being like, oh, gosh, that's going to take a lot of time and energy. (laughs) And then I put it off, and then I get really anxious because I put it off too long. Um, And then I start avoiding it actively. Mm -hmm. So that's not great. Uh, mm-hmm. Do not recommend, but that is <laughs> it, it, you know. Um, whereas bef- in the before cancer time, I would have probably, like, that would have really, like, made me physically stressed out, even though I was still avoiding it. Now I'm able to avoid it and I don't get as stressed out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because honestly, it's just an email, probably. Yeah. Did you, during that time, ever feel abandoned by people or anything like that, like, alone? Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I sure did. And it was really hard to reconcile because uh, there was a lot of guilt still somehow in uh, how much people had been helping me. And, uh-huh. and the fact that I felt at all alone felt like, mm-hmm. you know, I was betraying all of the people who were doing so much to help me and, you know, had their own lives that they were dealing with as well. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, every once in a while I'd get really frustrated and, like, feel slighted. Um, Mm -hmm. And a lot of that was... I don't want to say it wasn't justified, but a lot of it was, like, just me feeling hurt and the direction was not really at anyone or it shouldn't have been at anyone and i hate using the word should but you know it shouldn't have been at anyone um and i quickly pretty quickly realized like this is this is really not for this person i'm not upset Mm. at this person do you still feel that way about stuff or was that a site specific emotion oh yeah i mean i feel feel that way about stuff all the time um i constantly feel guilty when people help me um And I always want to make it up to them. And Mm -hmm. I have realized in my brain that I will never be able to really make it up to everyone who Mm -hmm. helped me when I had cancer. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's a certain amount of reconciliation with that. 
Yeah. But then there's the part of me that can't quite reconcile it. Um, yeah, absolutely. What's it, what was the biggest help for you coming out of all that? All of the, was it running? Was it, or was it something else? Out of my cancer treatment? Yeah. Uh, I, the biggest help was my community and my family and friends. A hundred percent for sure. My dog. Um, <laughs> the second is absolutely running. I don't know how I would have gotten through last year without it. Mm. Um, and it's so bizarre to go from someone who hated <laughs> running to someone who needs to run. It, it feels always like vindictive of like, yeah, it's kind of like we were talking about your change in attitude kind of seems to be a little bit more that, but you're obviously still very, you know, kind and polite and what have you. But like, can you just talk a little bit about that? Basically? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like... Uh, absolutely. Uh, there were a couple things in there. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, the running, it is a bit vindictive. It's like, oh, you think you're going to beat my body cancer? Well, you know what? I'm going to get through this and I'm also going to run a marathon. So what would your biggest piece of advice be for someone who is, who's recently gone through cancer and is dealing with that? It is going to take longer than you think. Not the cancer part, the emotional part. And that's okay. Take care of yourself do what you need to do. You are not alone. And, you know, you can let yourself be sad or upset mm-hmm. for a while. Like, that is fine. How has cancer treatment affected, like, your creative views or output? Have, has any of that changed? It really brought me back to what I want to do is acting, which mm-hmm. has always been the case. I love directing. I will happily direct at other points, but I want to make sure that I am acting more than I am doing anything else. Mm-hmm. artistically um and i needed to really make that a priority so my output has decreased i did do a play last year i acted in a play last year that was wonderful i got to be ophelia again mm-hmm. um and that felt fantastic i've done other readings and whatnot since then but especially with the amount of anxiety and the special anxieties about especially my appearance and not having headshots that look like me anymore. All these limitations kind of felt like they were pumping the brakes on me being able to have the artistic output that I really wanted to. Do you think that this experience will be more beneficial or more of a detriment to your creative output? Silver linings. Sure. Uh, Ultimately, I think it'll be good. Okay. Uh, Once I get in the groove, I only have more life experience to add to all of my my characters now yeah, um yeah. no but for real um <laughs> yeah that is and how also it works. you know there's a certain amount of like clarity of purpose mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so so yeah i think it will be good for me once i'm able to get back on track for real ali matu is an excellent youtube creator he runs a channel called The Psych Show, where he produces a lot of very helpful content about mental health. As a former therapist, he is deeply knowledgeable and also happens to be deeply personable. We speak about grief and how to get through it, as well as his issues with the mental health care system. I hope you enjoy his interview. So, last time we talked, uh, which was years ago. (laughs) Yeah, it's like a decade ago at this point. Yeah, we're both... (laughs) should be in a retirement home by now. Um, 
but we really focused on your work as a, a therapist mm. at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and since then, you've made a couple of changes <laughs> regarding your career. <laughs> yeah, you can say that. <laughs> yeah, what, what's the story there? Um, man, I think that must have been 2017? Yeah, it was something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, a lot of things happened since then. Um, well, there's like the pandemic, uh, but we're not talking about that. Um, not quite. <laughs> what happened What happened to me? So, um, you know, a few things happened. One, one is my, to make a long story short, my wife got a job opportunity out here in California. And mm-hmm. we both grew up and met uh, here in California, in Northern California, we went to high school together, and mm-hmm. uh, yeah, we had lockers next That's to each nice. other. And oh my gosh, yeah, it was not love at <laughs> first sight. It was um, we hated each other actually. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> sure, real <laughs> Han and Leia situation. Yeah. We, um, mm-hmm. So w- when we last spoke, I had recently had a baby, and um, over time she got bigger, as babies do. <laughs> <laughs> and developed more abilities. She kept leveling up as a human. Yeah. Um, <laughs> turns out. It turns out they're a lot easier to take care of when they can't walk and move. Um, yeah. You know, All of a sudden they're running and then you're like, oh no. Dude. What am I? The period from not walking to running mm-hmm. is like, it happens so fast. You think they're going to walk oh and my just God, be slow, yeah. but no. It's like. Yeah. They walk. They, they, it takes them months to learn how to walk, and then in like hours they learn how to run. Absolutely, it's, um, it, that seems metaphorical <laughs> somehow. Um, and then yeah. you become an adult, and you mm-hmm. just crawling again. You're crawling uh. again. Um, but yeah, I, absolutely. When I was working in childcare, like I would work with like one year olds, and then over the course of I only worked for for a little over a year, but like seeing that amount of like it's so rapid. Oh yeah, how much like they physically and mentally expand. I was just astonished. Yeah, the one year olds especially like so much stuff happens mm-hmm. during that one year. Like an early one year old versus a late one year old it's like they're they're like different people and my wife got this job opportunity um in tech here in silicon valley which would bring us home and we never really imagined ourselves as being people who would live in northern california again we love new york but new york became kind of really difficult for us with a young child cuz we had no we had no real family out there who could help yeah. out and just simple things like someone being able to help out over the weekend so you can catch up on sleep or do these chores or errands like that was kind of impossible and so the job opportunity came up and we just uh, decided to take it and then as i took it i was thinking okay what am i am i going to just keep doing what i've been doing Mm-hmm. And I decided, no, I don't want to do that anymore. And what happened there is, um, I don't know how much we got into this last time we spoke, but I have become really frustrated with the way mental health care works in this country mm-hmm. for a number of reasons. Um, I got really tired of only being able to help a small select group of people who could overcome stigma, navigate the healthcare system, 
identify a mental health care provider, be able to afford that mental health care provider, and carve out time in their schedule where they can come in and see me for an hour every week. Yeah, that's a lot of hurdles for someone who's dealing with mental health issues. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And so I got frustrated with that end. I've always been frustrated with that end. And no one told me that when I was studying all of this stuff that like, hey, by the way, it's going to be very hard to do everything that we're training you to do. Um, uh-huh. So there's the um, there's that side of the problem. But then there's mm-hmm. all the other sides, like um, at the last in- institution I was working at, which is uh, I guess a very nice way <laughs> of, of referring to uh, my former employer over the course of uh, from 2013 to t- 2019 my what's called productivity expectations just increased every every year and Uh what that means is the number of patients I have to see to be able to earn my salary just kept going up and um it it just kind of became I saw where things were headed and um things were headed in a direction where I was going to it was going to be hard for me to do my work and sustain my own mental health and and be there for my family and and all of that sort of stuff so when i came back to california i kind of rebooted my life and wanted to find ways to scale up mental health uh, find ways where i could make a difference knowing what i know and um be able to provide something that helps a lot a lot of people um, mm-hmm. So there's two ways where I'm working on that right now. One is um, I've invested a lot more time and effort on my YouTube channel, and I developed an awesome plan of how to tackle that. And then um, I was going to do this call-in show, and I recorded actually like seven episodes of it. And yeah. so I thought, like, let's just, like, let's get rid of the the secrecy that exists in therapy. Mm-hmm. Let's make it open let's give it away and let's then share it. Um, Mm -hmm. And then I recorded seven episodes and then uh, the coronavirus hit and all of those episodes like were not relevant at all (laughs) anymore. Sure, yeah. People's problems changed. They they completely changed. And I I thought I was being so uh, prudent in recording these things uh, like batch recording ahead of time. Mm -hmm. And then like I recorded a bunch of stuff that like, would not work at all in a shelter in place quarantine pandemic world so but but i'm still like iterating on that i'm still figuring things out the other thing that uh, might be an exclusive here for you is yeah i haven't mentioned this at all Uh, i mentioned on a video but i haven't released yet um but um getting the scoop i started this is 100 percent a scoop i just started working at a um a mental health startup too where oh, cool. yeah it's it's really cool the the um we're super super early it's like a very small team of people but um this team is invested in um uh, trying to address problems of loneliness in a way mm-hmm. that's free and scalable so how do we bring the best of cognitive behavioral therapy and um, create something that can really make a difference in people's lives. I, I, I can't share too much because we're so early on, but um, the founder of this uh, startup 
um, has worked in a lot of the social media apps and got frustrated with how in some ways they were creating more more loneliness than connection and wanted to mm-hmm. do something about it. So I'm, I'm working on that. And um, yeah, that's where I'm at, Tristan. That's, okay. that's, uh, these are things that I am doing. As a mental health provider, I think a lot of people don't consider your mental health mm. as well as a therapist. And I know that uh, when we last spoke, we we had spoken about a little bit of the anxieties that you face. Mm. Besides, other than the current pandemic, um, how has that been since last we spoke? I think they've they've probably evolved in lots of different ways. So mm. I I'm still still learning how to deal with the worries of being responsible for a human being um that that is constantly there and constantly evolving and changing um right now the biggest one with that is uh, like i am so desperate to get childcare again like it has <laughs> been yeah like my wife is working from home i'm working from home and i know we're very lucky to even be working um yeah. so i i 100 percent am very grateful for that um, at the same time, we've completely lost childcare, and, and that thing I mentioned to you about a big driver of moving to California, we yeah. was our, our relatives, and we cannot see them right now. Yeah, um, especially one of the relatives I'm very close to has um, is immune compromised, so we have to be even more cautious. And then my wife's parents are here. But they're they're much older. We need to be very cautious of that. So it's like okay, well we're kind of all alone in this again. So, yeah. um, but one of the worries I have is when is it even go- when am I going to even know if it's okay for us to bring my daughter back to childcare to daycare? Like sure, just yeah. like I don't I don't I don't know, my friend. One that I have now. I mean, this is a, a always there is like a imposter syndrome stuff. Um, yeah. now sometimes I, I feel like, well, I am, can, am I, am I really in touch with the issues that are happening because I'm not primarily seeing patients anymore and will people mm-hmm. still take me seriously now that I mm-hmm. don't have my academic affiliation behind my name and, and all of that sort of stuff. So, you know, there's always that kind of stuff in the back of my head, but in some ways I feel way more liberated and free and, um, able to explore more stuff than I ever could before. We didn't really get into this last time we spoke either. Um, you lost your brother at a very early age or yeah. early-ish age. Um, um, I was 25 and he was uh, 35, yeah. That's still early for both of you. Yeah. Um, the grand scheme of things. Yeah. Um, I would love to hear a little bit more about that story and how you came through that situation. So it was... 2008 is when he died so it's been um it's been a little over um 10 years now at this point and so he died by suicide he um took his own life and he had a very long um long struggle with bipolar depression um that we did not we were not really aware of until just a few years before he died. And I don't think he was aware of either. He never got a diagnosis for it until um, just a few years before he died. And I don't really get into his story because that was his story. 
and but I do get into my story and you know he he really had this undiagnosed bipolar disorder bipolar depression and um, after he died uh, I was in the middle of grad school and um, I really struggled with that for for years and it took me five years to really get to a place where I could talk about it because after he died I was um, I sort of separated everyone I knew into two categories. I, I mean, I did this like unconsciously. It's not like I sat at a desk and had an idea one day. Ah, here's what I will do. Here's how I'll cope with this. But everyone yeah. who knew me before he died, I just didn't talk to him about it. And then everyone who I met after he died, I pretended to be like an only child. I would totally oh, wow. sidestep the whole conversation because I didn't want to, I didn't want my like trauma and guilt and sadness and anger and relief and um, all of that stuff to be triggered by like mm. an everyday conversation. That's what it felt like sure. to me. Like the most vulnerable, horrible, sad difficult memory for me could be triggered when uh, a co-worker said man i've been so stressed i just feel like i want to like kill myself like i remember a moment like that happening and inside my heart started to race i felt hot i wanted to get out of there slash punch the person and um i just sidestepped all of that by like pretending like not or trying to minimize opportunities for that to happen. So uh, I learned years later that five years is about the time it takes people to be able to really grieve a um, complicated grief. Um, mm -hmm. And what makes complicated grief complicated is when feelings of guilt or responsibility play in, which in a lot of uh, deaths by suicide that that comes up. Um, and the way I started dealing with it is um, I started talking to a small group of people. And that's also when I started doing more blogging and podcasts and, and stuff like that. And I realized there was this tension between the more I'm putting myself out there, the more there is this massive elephant in the room that I have not dealt with. Like, yeah. you can't... I, I think a lot of artists and I, I don't I don't class myself as artists I don't I don't think I create art but um, um, I think creative people what's that creative people a lot of yeah yeah let's go with that I I, yeah. I do definitely create and I like yeah creating. absolutely yeah a lot yeah. of creative people have to make a decision about how much of yourself you're putting into your work and you're putting out there into the world mm -hmm. And um, and that includes your personal life, too. And I was getting to a point where I was having to make these decisions because I was I was doing more speaking and more uh, more outreach. And I was and a lot of what I was sharing was my life and who I am about yeah. being a Trekkie and a star um, sci fi fan and about yeah. all of like how much these things that I loved helped me and led me to where. I am and how they can help you and all of that. Mm -hmm. Well, I um, I decided that I have to, I have to address this because I won't be able to make the stuff 
and share the things that I want to share without addressing this. So it got to a point where I just wrote the story of what I was going through, and it's called um, The Parallel Universe Where My Brother Lives. And it's um, a story about how I would have these dreams where I'm in this parallel universe where my brother never died, and he comes home, he opens a door, and I look at him, and I'm like, hey, where have you been? I haven't seen you in a long time. And we just kind of pick up right where we left off, and I'm catching him up on everything that's happened in my life that he's missed out on. He's, I'm catching him up on moving to New York and getting married and finishing grad school and getting a real job at you know, uh, in the third decade of my life, <laughs> like, um, <laughs> all of these kind of things. And, um, I would wake up then and it's like losing him all over again. It was, um, it was like torture because I, I, I felt that reconnection and I would wake up and then he'd be gone. And I felt like I was grieving all over again. So it's that story. And, um, I shared that and it was, uh, um, profoundly healing specifically getting feedback from so many people who said me too um Mm -hmm. and i remember one person in in specifically who said you know last year when i told you that my dad died of a heart attack that was actually a suicide and i haven't told anyone outside my family but i can tell you this and we i had a lot of moments like that where by sharing that it made it okay to have that conversation and by having that conversation i felt less shame and less guilt and um that traumatic experience i was having started to kind of disappear um So where I am now, I mean, that was five years ago. I shared that story, and I shared that story five years after my brother died. So, you know, five plus five is ten, um, or we're over ten now. We're, um, actually, this month will be 12 years since he died. Wow. Um, where I am now is um, trying to, you know, every he, my brother is a person who introduced me to all my geeky interests, and every time... I do something geeky publicly. I feel like it's one very, very, very small way. I am like honoring his memory and keeping his memory alive because he did. Um, he he is he's the core agent in my origin story as a geek. Um, he is he's like the radioactive spider that bit me <laughs> and allowed me to become Spider Man. You know. Um, so that's that's kind of where things are now you know i I miss him every day um and it breaks my heart to know that like my daughter would never know him but um i will share those stories and make sure that she knows who he was um where do you think in general imposter syndrome comes from and where do you think you get yours um so we know a few things can make people vulnerable to imposter syndrome um we know that if you are if you are a minority in some way in mm. the group that you're in um that that can it, for a number of reasons make you question if you even belong in that group so for example um people who are first generation college students when they're in a college environment 
can feel as though they, they don't belong. And so, like, what's what's going into that? Well, they probably haven't had role models in their family who have completed college, who have talked about these experiences, or they might have to go through um, rituals or ceremonies and have no knowledge of how to navigate that. Um, so many reasons why. Or you might not see people in that group who are like you. Um, and you might not be able to talk to other people about like, wow, this is so weird. I'm having this thought. And then you're like, well, why am I having that thought? And then it's like, oh, maybe, maybe it's cause I don't belong. Maybe I shouldn't be here. Um, and then I, so that's one is like, if you, if you're experiencing a group as a, as a minority, another, another thing that might happen is, um, in cultures where, uh, and I'm using culture so broadly, like comedians are a culture, uh, YouTubers yeah. are a culture where people don't often share their struggles. I think that's a big part about this mm. is uh, if there isn't a culture of sharing struggles and a culture where uh, achievement and um, quote unquote progress or success, I should say, it's very much uh, you can put a metric on it. So like for yeah. me, like a YouTube video and views or shares and like, mm-hmm. like, okay, that's a successful video. Well, um, I can always compare myself against people who have more views, more subscribers, more shares, all that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. And then feel like, well, I, my, the stuff I'm putting out is crap. And, um, someone, I told that to someone and they said, um, I mean, tell that to the hundred people who watch your video. Or the thousand people who watch your video, or the fifteen thousand people who watch your video, like they watched the video and it made a difference to them. And if you had like a hundred people in your home saying, "Yeah, hey, this is awesome. Thanks for making that," you'd be like, "Oh my god, a hundred people <laughs> like yeah. a thing I've made," and they say it made a big difference in their life. So uh, those cultures, the, those types of communities, uh, I think, can just be like a super fertile breeding ground for imposter syndrome. Do you think that um, any sort of mental health issues or mental health stress is necessary for being a creative person? I think it's hard to, it's, it's really hard to create something when you don't have life experience. Mm-hmm. So and and you don't necess- I don't think you need to have life and experience before you create something. Like you can create something, and that something is about getting that life experience. Like mm-hmm. some of my favorite mm-hmm. YouTube videos are where someone's like, "I don't know at all how to do this thing. I'm gonna try to learn how to do this thing, and I'm gonna film it, and we're gonna see mm-hmm. what happens." And I love that because we're all like there's so much stuff we all don't know and it's so cool to see someone else like try to do a thing like i i love Mm -hmm. those videos and those videos are about gaining life experience um so i i think the more life experience you have about a, a thing and the more you're able to tell a story about that thing the more you will connect with other people um in, in a meaningful way like something that I've come to really believe when it comes to um, storytelling is 
the specific is what makes something universal. And I didn't come up with that. Someone told me that, and I keep saying it now, but I'm sure someone <laughs> who is much more acclaimed uh, than I <laughs> originally came up with that kind of sentiment. But the more you can very specifically sh- share an experience that is real and lived and authentic, that is what's going to connect with an audience because that then taps into um real emotions that we all experience um mm-hmm. so like i may never like learn how to build a log cabin from scratch but i really love seeing other people like learn how to do that <laughs> and like fail yeah. and like cuz i've definitely tried to take on something that like i have no idea how to do and i, I love seeing that experience so yeah I, I i don't think that has to be mental illness i don't think that has mm-hmm. to be like um, trauma. I don't think it has to be those things, but it does have to be like a real experience that is meaningful and emotional. What would your biggest piece of advice to someone who's like trying to get through grief be? Hmm. Be patient, be compassionate with yourself is, is where I would start. And mm what that means is um grief is very timey-wimey very wibbly wobbly mm. like it is not mm. not linear um it goes in many different directions i mean one of the first things i did after i found out my brother died is i went to go see indiana jones in the kingdom of the crystal skull like mm-hmm. that came out like a day or two after my brother died and I was actually in the middle of rewatching the Indiana Jones trilogy that week when when I got the news, and mm-hmm. um, I still went to go see the new movie because I I felt like I I I needed it like I needed mm-hmm. an escape, and um, and y- you you don't know like there's no there's no clear answer to what you need in your point of your grief like I needed an escape at that point, and then like years later was when I was like rereading emails from him and letters from him and all these kind of things. So like it, it, it moves in weird directions and, um, grief is all about finding ways to keep the person that you have lost a part of your life. It's Mm -hmm. not about forgetting them. It's not about moving on. That, that's a very old idea of grief. Like, you got to move on. Now, it's about finding a way to keep this person uh, as a part of who you are. And mm-hmm. that might mean for a certain period of time to get to a place where you can keep them in your life, they need to kind of be on the side and not be there. Mm-hmm. So uh, grief is uh, to do grief well. <laughs> um <laughs> I'm really good at being bereaved. <laughs> I'm the best. Um, yeah. I, I'm optimized for grief. Um, to, to do it really well, it's it's all about experiencing a little bit of it right now. And if mm-hmm. it feels, if it gets to a place where it's overwhelming, back off. Ah. And then over time, mm-hmm. you'll be able to experience more of it without being so overwhelmed. How long mm. it's going to take for you, it's going to vary. And sometimes you'll be able to hold more of it and sometimes less of it. But ex- experience it, 
to a point to a point where you find yourself it's too much and then back off and then with time you'll be able to get to a place where those memories those ideas will always be there always be a part of you if you if you asked me that question five years ago six years ago seven years ago Tristan I don't don't know if I'd be able to answer it on the podcast I might have sides you know stepped around it but like I'm in a different place now but it took me a long road to get there and and that's okay if that's the path you're on but this was wonderful and I really want to thank you for being on again oh it's my pleasure it's so good to talk to you I hope you're um staying healthy staying safe and one of these days look forward to seeing you again uh in real life same And finally, I speak with improviser and podcaster Kate Harlow about her recent diagnosis of bipolar disorder and how to best perform self-care. For anybody who hadn't heard your previous episode, uh, how do you describe what sort of stuff you make and do? I have a background in all kinds of different performing. Uh, Most of what I spent the past... 10 or so years doing was improv comedy and the past two or three years I've gotten more into podcasting specifically I haven't had as many uh, Mm -hmm. venues or spaces to do live comedy so I've been doing more more recording and more um, interviews and talking and you know long distance connecting with people how has that like how does that feel to transition to those things was it like obviously it's not the same at all um do you have a preference or was it difficult um it felt in some ways it felt regressive but in other ways it's been really fantastic because i've been able to collaborate with people i never would have been able to work with before and it's given me opportunities that I never would have thought of expanding into before. Um, so, mm-hmm. and in, given the unusual circumstances that life has taken globally, <laughs> it's worked out very much in my favor. <laughs> um, I've been able to <laughs> yeah. lean into a lot of my creative endeavors that I think um, some people certainly haven't had the same opportunities to be able to work into and um, count myself very, very fortunate in that sense. And you've been doing, you said you'd been doing for over like 10 years, various performances, but mostly improv. What are the other things you've done? I originally started as a dancer. I was a ballerina for close to 16 years (laughs) until I eventually damaged my ankle so badly I really couldn't keep up with the level of performing that I was doing but over that career path I was a dancer I was a performer I was a teacher Mm -hmm. um I really planned on sticking with that for the long haul Mm -hmm. ballet could be incredibly strict um a lot of the time it has that reputation did that cause any sort of like emotional distress growing up I was very, very, very hard on myself. I had incredible uh, high standards for myself, and I was very, very judgmental of myself. And I also, I, I, I never measured up well enough for myself. I was constantly comparing myself to others. And um, 
retrospectively, I wonder how much of it was really that I really, really enjoyed it and how much of it was that I was just trying to impress other people. <laughs> <laughs> I understand. Um, how does that contrast with like doing improv where like there are like guidelines, but it's a lot looser? How was that transition? It it was a world of difference. It was <laughs> it, the it's the the thing that I initially fell in love with for improv was the feeling of community and family. That it wasn't so much of a an isolated. You know, the only person who can make you good at this is yourself. Mm-hmm. You know, you're you're going to be good at this if you put your energy into making everybody else look good as well. Yeah. You know, if you're out if you're out there only focusing on yourself, you're not going to look great. You're going to look like a jerk. Whereas like if you're a ballerina and you're trying to lift everybody else up, you're going to look like you're lifting everybody else up, but you're not going to look great yourself. And last time we spoke, uh we talked about your experience with anxiety and depression now from my understanding there's also been an additional diagnosis or new thing in your life do you want to talk about that uh so i've been wrestling with i i was uh, i had one doctor tell me that i was bipolar and then uh more recently i had another doctor say that maybe i wasn't maybe i was just i had like bipolar tendencies but I wasn't actually manic enough to qualify to be bipolar mm. it's been uh, a, a bit of a roller coaster <laughs> I lean more towards the I tend to believe more that I've, I still fall into the, the bipolar category it makes more sense if I look at the trend of my life mm-hmm. um, but you know, I'm I'm not the doctor. the The truth of the matter is, it shakes out to I'm still going to be on the same medications no matter what it says on paper. So, <laughs> sure. um, the 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 treatments are all going to be the same. That we're still going to follow the same, uh, you know, path as far as trying to get me on a, you know, a straight and narrow, you know, feeling good. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was really enlightening to look at. You know, go home and Google, like, what does that mean? Or why would he say that? And see, mm-hmm. like, oh, all of that makes sense. I've been doing all of those things. But was it also, so it was mostly a relief. Was it also hard to wrestle with that, though? I mostly found it to be a relief, honestly. I, I absolutely understand and I can relate to people who would find it to be more anxiety creating and and find it to be stressful or upsetting um it's it's not easy to feel stigmatized and it's it's a thing that i resent very much about the american healthcare system in particular how much stigma they put on mental health but for me i'm happy to be able to put a name to my experiences if you if it's not too personal um what's your plan of action now that you do have this change in your life um just to to find 
what feels good, what feels right. But like, it's so it's so hard to decide what normal should feel like because I sure. went for so long with my everyday being hard, with my everyday being too difficult. You know, I, I had a good year where getting up every day was impossible. Where mm-hmm. like, I only got up to feed the cat and that was it. And, you know, I'm tremendously blessed that I had a family that supported me and I didn't completely tank. Um, I, so, you know, being being that I was able to get out of that, that I was able to find better doctors that were able to help me get on my feet, get a job, you know, like I have my own place, I can take care of myself, you know, I'm doing that much better. I'm doing so, so much better that like I can do <laughs> things like have a life now. Mm-hmm. What does what does a real person do? <laughs> what is what, like what is functioning as a human and having a life feel like and look like? I would imagine during those depressive states, it would really get in the way of making and doing things. Yeah, I mean, there were there were times when like like when I was growing up, if I didn't go to school. Like, if you were sick that day, then you shouldn't go to ballet class that night because, like, if you didn't go to school and do the, like, your your job that day, then you shouldn't go do your fun activity that night. So by the time I was an adult, like, if I didn't go to work that day, then I shouldn't go do improv that night. I shouldn't go do my fun thing because mm-hmm. I didn't do my work thing. So mm-hmm. it took a really long time for me to say, like, if I feel well enough, I should go do something. Even if that, like, even if I didn't do work today, that's okay. I'm allowed to go do improv because at least I'm leaving the house. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, it's it's a difficult balance learning to let yourself do something. And how do you circumvent the inertia of depression? How do you circumvent that when you do need to go and make things? It's redefining what self-care is because a lot of people have that skewed view of it. Like self-care is just, you know, eating cupcakes and bubble baths and getting pedicures. Like, no, sometimes self-care is doing the minimum thing. Like sometimes self-care is just brushing your hair that day. Mm-hmm. Like sometimes self-care is making yourself go to work. Sometimes self-care is telling yourself that it's okay if all you did that day is one thing and that's okay. Mm -hmm. But like allowing yourself that much and letting it be okay. Are you doing any kind of therapy right now? Yes, I finally found a wonderful therapist who, um, I don't know, like... As, as soon as things started su- shutting down, he sent out like an email blast to all of his patients. He's like, I don't know how videos work, but we're, if you want to do a video visit, we'll do that. If you want to do a phone visit, that's fine. If you just want to type me out a thousand page email, that's fine. Whatever, we'll work it out. And then I got temporarily furloughed from my job, so I lost my mm-hmm. health insurance. And oh, I emailed no. him and I'm like, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know if I'm even going to be able to keep seeing you. And he's like, no, you're going to keep seeing me. This is fine. 
no i'm not i'm not gonna let you go that's fantastic Uh, and i was like you're the best most ethically upstanding doctor (laughs) i've ever dealt with and he's like well if you really want to do a very nice thing you can you can send that to like my doctor review website page Uh, i don't care but my friend says that it's nice if you say that (laughs) has any of your any of the things you've created um been born out of either like sort of state you've been in do you think to a certain extent i feel like a lot of the a lot of the characters that i've that I've played that I've chosen to play have kind of come from a place of um, a lot of them seem to have come from a place of feeling very powerless and just kind of going huh. wild out of that <laughs> these 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 characters that I'm playing like because they have been pushed so far to the limit of being powerless they are completely done they're just done yeah. with it you know, they're not going to be powerless anymore because they're so tired of it. Mm-hmm. What do they have left to lose because they have nothing left? How do you find that balance or how do you circumvent in that moment, um, if you're depressed, those tendencies to be inert and to not, to question yourself when you're doing improv? Because, you you know, you can't question yourself when you're doing improv. you got to just go with it. How do you personally, like, navigate that? One of my, one of my coaches... Uh, taught me something that it was uh the the concept of two minute bravery Mm. if you're if you're in a scene and and somebody somebody threatens you threatens you somebody somebody's gonna shoot you in a scene um you know they threaten to kill you go ahead and let them shoot you go Mm. ahead and die the scene's gonna be two minutes long yeah what's gonna happen (laughs) sure you'll be dead for two minutes and that's okay and then you get up but like, what's the worst thing that's going to happen is the other person has to suffer the consequences of what they did. But going back a little bit to the change in diagnosis, has your life changed at all? Have, has your like view of yourself changed besides like feeling like, oh, now I have a, an explanation. Has that impacted like how you treat yourself? I feel like I'm more in touch with myself or I'm more in touch with the person that I want to be or the person that I want to be going forward. I don't know if that's necessarily in connection with the diagnosis or if it's just kind of in tandem that that's kind of been a thing that's happening at the same time. What would your biggest piece of advice to someone who's dealing with either a new diagnosis or just mental health issues in general be to navigate creating things? Well, I mean, as far as dealing with new diagnoses and stuff, um, look for look for groups. Look for look for re- people of your own kind. It can feel really, really isolating, uh, especially if you're dealing with something new. Um, and it's very, very easy to feel like you're the only person in the world who's dealing with this thing. Mm-hmm. So know that you're never alone. There's absolutely no. I remember when I was applying for colleges and my guidance counselor called me into the office and she was like, I know you want to start looking for scholarships, look for specific things. I helped one of your friends find a scholarship for diabetics who play tennis. (laughs) There is something for everybody. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Like, be specific. You can be choosy. It's fine. Yeah. Um, And as far as creating things... 
give yourself permission to take a break. Mm. I was afraid when I stopped improvising that I was going to not create anything else and I was going to hate myself for it. And I was afraid that I was just going to not be a creative person anymore. And that it was just going to be this horrible failure because I wasn't a dancer anymore. And I had a coworker say to me once, I was wearing like a festival t-shirt or something. And he was like, oh, Kate, you, you, you used to do comedy? Yeah, you seem like somebody who used to do that. Oh. And it crushed me Ooh. for like a week. And then uh, and my boyfriend was just like, you still do do comedy (laughs) (laughs) and I was like oh yeah (laughs) (laughs) like why why is it that one person's comment took me down so hard (laughs) yeah I mean I think it's a similar issue of like when you're doing a show and you see the one person not laughing at the same joke as everybody yep I think in order to do comedy specifically, you have to have that extra sensitivity because that's, you know, um, Billy Crystal put it, it's like you, you, like a hug from a stranger. Like it's that same sort of thing, like getting that rush. Mm-hmm. And do you think that plays into your natural ten- temperament? Do you think you're like, quote unquote, overly sensitive to things? Oh, absolutely. How's that? <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, it has its moments. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, um, it's, it's a gift and a curse. I, uh, the volunteer work that I do can be hugely, um, taxing on some people, but I don't find it taxing. I find it purely rewarding. Um, so what, some people absolutely would hate to do i choose to do it that's my thing that i do for fun Mm -hmm. um and like i don't say that just to like ring my own bell like oh i volunteer like Mm -hmm. it's a thing that i'm able to do so that's what i'm going to do because i'm a person who can do it Mm -hmm. what do you do what's volunteer work um i'm a crisis counselor for uh text well i back before i couldn't go outside uh (laughs) i used to be a hospital responder for the local crisis services um for domestic violence and sexual assault Mm -hmm. victims and now i work for something called the crisis text line um so i respond to all kinds of crisis people people Mm -hmm. crisis people in crisis (laughs) Uh, um it's a it's a free service anybody can text in if you're in crisis um and you will get a live person 24 7 who will just talk to you via text interesting um and and talk you through whatever's going on that's great that's that's great um do you know if it is is it just a local thing or is it it's global okay and what's it called again crisis text line okay cool i just wanted to make sure that people could hear that (laughs) That's very good. Well, thank you very much for doing this again. I I appreciate it. Absolutely my pleasure. Anytime. If you made it this far, I want to thank you very much for listening to all of the interviews or skipping to this part. If you ever need anything, my contact info is in the show notes. Thank you and have a great day.